0: Amen. Let me welcome you to our fourth week of our study through the life and the family and the faith of Abraham. We're going to be reading in Genesis 16 in a few minutes, but I want to begin with you by considering a verse out of the New Testament. You don't have to turn. They'll put it on the screen for us on both campuses. It's 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, which many of you will recognize. For we walk by faith and not by sight read that out loud with me for we walk by faith and not by we know the verse but do you really know what it means what does it really mean to walk by faith and not to walk according to what we see and understand in the physical world what our experiences are what our intellect tells us what does it mean to truly walk by faith. Well, consider it this way. None of us have ever seen God, right? You've never seen God face to face. And yet through the eye of faith, we believe in him. We believe that God is, that God exists. And not only that God exists, but we believe that God is good. And based upon our faith confidence that God is and that God is good then we live by that faith we align our lives our decisions our values our priorities our responses we align our lives with this fact that there is a God who sees me knows me one day I will stand before him and he is infinitely good and merciful and holy and just. I don't live my life as though there is no God. By faith, I know there is. and I want to live in a way that aligns with that knowledge. In the same way, none of us were in Bethlehem the day that Jesus was born. None of us saw the manger or the baby Jesus lying in the manger. We didn't follow him through his life and see him live perfectly. None of us were present at Mount Calvary the day that he died when they nailed him to the cross for our sins, we didn't see it. And we weren't there when the angel rolled the stone away or the day that he ascended back to heaven from the Mount of Olives. However, even though we have not seen those things, we live with the confident assurance that all of those things are so that he was truly born of a virgin, he did live a perfect life, he was crucified for our sins, he did rise from the dead and ascend to the Father and promised to come again. We believe it, though we haven't seen it, and we then welcome, because we believe it, we welcome the transformative power of this risen Christ in our lives. Again, the Holy Spirit. None of you have ever seen the Holy Spirit. In John 3, Jesus said the Holy Spirit's like the wind. You can't see him. You don't know where he's coming from or where he's going, but you sense his presence. You sense his comfort. You sense his strengthening and his guiding and his helping. And so though we've never seen the Holy Spirit, we believe the Holy Spirit exists. Therefore, we walk in lockstep with him by faith, allowing him to guide us, comfort us, and help us along the way. None of us have ever been to heaven. None of us have ever seen the streets of gold and and, uh, this city of God. And yet, we believe that it's real. We believe that the way into that city of God is through faith in Christ. And we're confident that this life is not the end. And when we pass from this life, if we know Christ, we will close our eyes in death and open our eyes in the presence of God. We've never seen God. We've never seen Jesus. We've never seen the Holy Spirit. We've never been to heaven, but we believe those things are true, not because we've seen them, but through the eye of faith. If you're with me, say amen. Does that make sense? So to live by those assurances, to live by that certainty, means that we live our lives in such a way that we are motivated by, that all of our life is determined by this confident belief in and a deep love for and a desire to please this God whom we've never, ever seen before. The fact is that we live by faith. Now, if you struggle with that just a bit, then let me encourage you and remind you that one of Jesus' own disciples following the resurrection struggled to believe in the resurrection. He's he's gained the the, uh, infamous nickname of the doubter. Do you remember his name? It's Doubting, say it, Thomas. Yeah, Doubting Thomas. And the faith struggle of Thomas is verbalized when he hears that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but he hasn't seen him yet. And John records it in John 20, verse 25, where, where Thomas says these words, unless I see. What did Paul say? We don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. But Thomas said, unless I see the prince in his hands, unless I can put my finger in the wounds, unless I can touch his side where the spear went in, unless I see him. I'll never believe it. Well, there's no faith in that, right? That's living by sight, not by faith. And you should know that Jesus was gracious to Thomas's unbelief, or I should say his struggle with believing. Jesus was gracious to that and in fact appeared to him and said, here are my wounds and touch my side and see that it is me. And in fact, when Thomas was then convinced of the resurrection. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And this is who we want to be. Amen. We want to be those people who will walk by faith and not by sight, who have never seen. And yet the fact that we have never seen in no way diminishes our confidence. In who God is and what he says. And this is why we are studying the life of Abraham. Because Abraham is for us a model of a life of faith. That said, will you agree with me that Abraham's faith was not flawless? Correct? It wasn't flawless. In fact, Abraham faltered in his faith on more than one occasion to a degree. And in our passage today, we're going to learn an important lesson in Genesis 16 about a time when Abraham and Sarah's faith faltered. I want to give you a warning. Both campuses online here in Weaverville, please listen. I want to give you a warning. Some of us will not need this warning, actually, because we've already learned this lesson in the crucible of our, of our own life experience and our own failures. But here's the warning anyway. That life's biggest blunders happen when we fail to walk by faith. I'll say it again. Life's biggest blunders happen when we fail to walk by faith. Genesis chapter 16 records the biggest blunder in the Abrahamic story. It records the biggest mistake that Abraham and Sarah ever made. In their lives. We're going to learn from it. Before we do, can I ask you a question? As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made? Think about it. What is the thing, since you've met Jesus, what is the thing, the decision that you've made, maybe the season in your life where you would simply say, I drove it in the ditch, man. I mean, I was just wrong in what I did, what I decided, how I was living. I was wrong. I can almost guarantee you that whatever it is, whatever that mistake is, I can almost guarantee you that you made that mistake because you were not walking in faith. I remember a time in my own life, 30 years ago, I had been the pastor of this church for three years, and it was a hard season. It was tough. The church was tiny and we were literally struggling to survive. And, and it was a difficult time in my own life. It was a tough time for me and Tracy. Our, we had, our kids were small and we were just trying to survive as well. And, and uh, we were going through just some, some pressures in our own family. And um And I got to thinking, you know, the grass would be greener on the other side, right? You ever think that? And I got to thinking, well, maybe I just need to resign this church and and go pastor another church. I wasn't walking by faith through the difficult season I was walking through. And I had an opportunity. There was a little church down on the coast of North Carolina, nine hours from here. And they invited me to come and preach a trial sermon, and I did. And they voted 100% to call me as their pastor. And it was just now up to me and Tracy to decide. And I want you to know, I had my foot out. I was going, man. We were going to move at three years into this ministry. And thank God for two people who spoke into my life and said, you're not walking by faith. You need to press through this and be faithful where God's called you. And how I praise the Lord that I didn't make that decision because my life, our family's life would have been so different over the last 30 years. But had I made it, I would have made it because I wasn't walking in faith. The greatest blunders that we make, we make because we're not walking in faith. And this is the case with Abraham and Sarah in chapter number 16. Now, let me set the scene for you. By now, you know both Abraham and Sarah, you've learned much about them in the last three weeks. Today in the text, you're going to be introduced to a, a person, a woman, who you haven't seen yet in, in our study. Uh, her name is Hagar. Now, chapter 16 tells us a number of things about Hagar in the first. Uh, really just in the first few verses and then toward the end of the chapter. Uh, First of all, it tells us that Hagar was an Egyptian woman. Uh, In all likelihood, Hagar had come into the family of Abraham and um, and Sarah, had come into their clan in chapter 12 when they had gone down into Egypt. And you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Pharaoh gave to Abraham men servants and maid servants, male servants, or slaves, and female. And he acquired those, and uh, in all likelihood, one of those was this young Egyptian girl by the name of Hagar. Verse 1 tells us that she became Sarah's uh, handmaid, her servant girl. Chapter 16 also tells us that Hagar becomes Abraham's second wife, and that Hagar fathers Abraham's first child. And so you have to ask the question, how does a young Egyptian servant girl get involved with the patriarch of Israel, the father of faith, and bear his first child? How does that happen? Well, the text tells us exactly how it happens, and we're going to read it. It's the entire chapter, 16 verses. I want you to see the whole thing. So you follow along as I read, please. Verse number one says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had a handmaid, a servant, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing I pray thee, go in unto my maid, sleep with Hagar, so that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened unto the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt for ten years in the land of Canaan. And she gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. Verse 4 says, And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, then her mistress Sarai was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, my wrong be upon thee. Translation, this is all your fault. My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into your bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, then I was despised in her eyes. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, the maid is in your hand. Do to her as it pleases you. And when Sarai dealt hardly or harshly with her, Hagar fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, return unto your mistress and submit yourself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly and it shall be numbered for multitude." or it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand shall be against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. It means he'll dwell with hostility, in the presence of all his brethren. And so she called, Hagar called the name of the Lord that spake to her, Thou, the God that seest me, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have also here looked upon the God that looks after me, or the God that sees me. Wherefore that well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. Now somebody ought to say, whoa, <laughs> what just happened? There's a lot in this text. I mean, when you read through this, you start to wrap your head around it, you have Abram and Sarah going along through life, happily married, and one day she comes up with the idea, hey, why don't you sleep with my servant girl, Hagar, why don't you marry her, let's raise a family uh, out of her womb, since I cannot conceive. Abram goes along with the idea, he and Hagar are married, Hagar conceives, and immediately she begins to hate Sarah. Sarah immediately begins to hate Hagar. Sarah is now mad at Abram. And Abraham now is being unkind to Hagar when he says to Sarai, well, she's your servant girl, do with her. He just married the girl. And he's saying to her, do with her what you wanna do. She treats her so harshly that Hagar runs for her life And here's this word from the Lord, the son that you're going to bear is going to bring continual conflict in this family. I mean, forgive me if it feels to me like the Cleavers just showed up on the Jerry Springer show in chapter 16. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, you have to read this and ask the question, how does a family so devoted to God collapse into such dysfunction? How in the world? It's a good question. We're gonna answer that question. But before we answer it, I wanna deal with three big issues that are in this text that I I just can't read chapter 16 without briefly mentioning these three big issues. And I want you to jot each one of them down and let's think about what what God says about each of them. Number one, I wanna mention briefly the issue of polygamy, which is exactly what happens here. You know that polygamy means the practice of having more than one spouse at a time, And in this passage, Abraham marries a second wife. He's married to Sarai, who will become Sarah. Now he marries Hagar. Here's the question. Does God approve of Abraham having two wives? Does God approve of polygamy? Some people will oftentimes make the case, well, you know, in the Bible, there's a lot of polygamy going on. And some of God's most choice servants actually were polygamists. David, for instance, had multiple wives. His son Solomon followed in his footsteps and took it so far, it's crazy. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines, a thousand women. Is God pleased with that? The simple answer is no. Hear me clearly God never approved of polygamy. God's people sometimes do things that displease. Jesus, the Lord. Can I get a witness from anybody in the room? Have you ever done anything that displeased the Lord? Sure we have. And Abraham displeased the Lord in this. Genesis chapter one, God defined what a marriage is. He in Genesis one said that a marriage is a union in holy matrimony between one man and one woman. If y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. What did I say? One man and not two, three, four, five. 30 women, one man and one woman. May I be so bold, not one man and one man or one woman and one woman, one man and one woman. God defined what marriage is. And the Bible says in, in Deuteronomy 17, God is clear. Do not multiply wives under yourself. And when Jesus talked about this in Matthew 19, he said that a man and a woman would leave their mother and father, they would be joined together and would become one Does God approve of polygamy? No, he does not. Second issue in this text is morality. Morality. You look at this text, you read it, you go, is this moral or is this immoral? Is it moral the way that Hagar was handed off as a bride and then discarded because they they were suddenly unpleased with her? Is this moral or immoral? It is absolutely immoral. And God was in no way pleased with it. You might even wonder, what would the people around Abraham and Sarah think? I mean, how would they view it? You need to know that the Canaanite culture in which they lived would not have raised an eyebrow about it. They would have thought nothing of this arrangement at all. It would have been perfectly fine with all of their neighbors. But I want you to hear me carefully. The culture is not the keeper of morality. God is the keeper of morality. The culture doesn't decide what is moral and what is immoral. God has told us what is moral and immoral. Listen, right and wrong are not time-sensitive, localized, culturally-driven decisions. God has said this is right and this is wrong. And what God has said is moral will always remain moral. And what God has said is immoral will always remain immoral. Are you tracking with me? God determines morality. And I make that point because... You and I live in a culture, and we are raising our children and influencing our grandchildren in a culture which demands that you agree with this statement. Your morality is yours. My morality is mine. We all can have our own subjective right or wrong, and you simply must affirm what I say is my moral Uh, stance or my values, regardless of what God says and regardless of what even science and biology says, you need to hear me say, God determines what is moral. Amen. And um, this was immoral. Number three, slavery. First issue, polygamy. Second issue, morality. Third issue, slavery. Hagar was a slave. And so it brings to to mind the question, does God approve of slavery? Slavery. Well, no, he does not, Uh, and in fact, in every culture throughout history, every society throughout history, there has been some measure of slavery, slavery uh, in some uh, form or another. It's the gospel of Jesus, and I want you to hear me clear, clearly. It is the gospel of Jesus that destroys the value system that embraces slavery. Because in Jesus, he elevates every person to be equal before God. Doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, we are all equal before the Lord, all created in the image of God. And it was the Christianized Western civilization that sought to abolish slavery from the face of the earth. Namely, I might say the United States of America, which realized its sin and fought a civil war under, uh, the, the, realm of, or under the, the banner of Christ and his freedom in order to abolish slavery. Slavery is real it even is real in the world today, but God is not in favor of slavery. I could not read this chapter without, without talking about polygamy morality Slavery. But let's think about Abraham and Sarah's faith and how they faltered in this point. Why would such a great man of God, a man of great faith and his wife, who had served the Lord so steadily, why would they suddenly disobey God's commands? Suddenly move away from God's values and ethics to make the decision that they made. Well, the first thing I would say to you is that this decision was driven by Sarah's lapse in faith. Now, I'm not in any way alleviating from Abraham the responsibility that he bears in this situation, but this was driven by Sarah's lapse of faith. Over the last month, we have learned much about faith as we've been following Abraham's life. And we've learned a couple of things that that are important to know about faith. Number one, faith is about belief. Faith involves belief. I I simply believe what God has said is true. We talked about this at the beginning. I've never seen it, never seen him, never seen Christ, never seen heaven, never seen the Holy Spirit, but I believe what the Bible says about those things. Romans 4 says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Listen to what Hebrews 11.1 says. It defines faith this way. Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It means it is the assurance of the things hoped for. So faith is not, I hope God is alive. I hope Jesus is the Savior. I hope heaven is real. No, faith is not hope so. Faith is assurance that Christ is real. I believe it. It goes on to say in verse number 1 of Hebrews 11 that it is the substance or the evidence of things that we hope for. Faith means I believe. Secondly, faith means we obey. Faith involves submission. Because I believe that God is real, I love him, I want to obey him. We talked about the fact that Abraham heard the call of God and obeyed the command of God, right? So he moved in obedience. What did we learn that obedience is the measure of my faith. If I truly believe, then I will obey. Faith involves belief, faith involves submission. We've, we've talked about those two things. There's a third element or third aspect of faith that we haven't talked about, but I want to mention to you right now. Write it down, it is this. It is that faith involves patient waiting. Faith means that we must sometimes wait For God to keep His word to us, to fulfill His promises to us. We must wait on God's time, move in His timing, and not drive uh, according to our own timeline. Notice what verse number three says, chapter 16, verse number three, when it says that Sarai Abram's wife took Hagar, her maid the Egyptian, gave her to be the husband of Abram, to be his wife, or to be the wife of Abram. And look when she did this, verse three. After they had dwelt in the land for 10 years. Now think about the timeline of Abram receiving the promise from God, you're going to have a son, many descendants, I'm going to give them a land and I'm going to bless the whole world through that land. That was the promise. Think about how long it took for God to keep that promise. Acts 7 tells us that Abram received the promise before he left the Ur of the Chaldees, before they went to Haran. And they stayed in Haran until his father Terah died. We don't know how long before they went to Haran that he received the call. And we don't know how long they lived in Haran. I'm going to call it 10 years. I'm going to estimate it at 10 years. Maybe it was 2, maybe it was 15. I don't know for sure, but we're we're going to assume it was 10. So he receives the call from God, you're gonna have a son. 10 years pass before they ever go into the land of Canaan. Genesis tells us that they come into Canaan when Abraham is 75 years old. Now if my 10 year estimate is right, he would have received the promise at age 65, Sarah would have been 55. Now this passage in chapter 16 tells us that they live in the land for 10 years. And after 10 years in the land, they still haven't had a son. So by the time you get to chapter 16, Abraham is now 85 years old. He marries Hagar at the age of 85. Look at verse number 16. Verse 16 says that he was 86 years old when Ishmael is born. Finally, Genesis 17 tells us that God reaffirms the promise to Abraham that he's going to have a son 13 years after Ishmael is born. If y'all are listening, shout amen. 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, God says to Abraham, next year, buddy. Next year, Sarah's going to have a baby. And so finally, in chapter 21... When Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90, finally, she conceives and gives birth to the promised son, Isaac. Listen, it took 30, if if my estimate is right, 35 years from the time God made the promise until the time Isaac was born and God fulfilled the promise. Let me ask you a question. How long have you been waiting on God to do something that you need for him and expect him to do? How long have you had to wait for the Lord to keep his word? In the waiting is where we make our worst mistakes because we get tired of waiting. I never ever think about this kind of thing without thinking of young, unmarried people, especially young, unmarried women who long for a husband. You long for that man to marry you and sweep you off your feet and have this family and build that life and and it just hasn't happened yet and it's such a vulnerable place in the lives of young women, especially who wanted it and they're waiting and they're waiting for that man to come along. And Mr. Right just hasn't shown up yet. Mr. Wrong keeps showing up. Mr. Sorry and Mr. Liar and Mr. Whatever, they keep showing up. But Mr. Right hasn't come yet. And ladies, I want you to listen to me. Men as well, young men as well. And, and somebody told me at first service, hey, we older single people struggle with this too. I want you to listen to me. You are in a very vulnerable position to make a really bad decision. If you, will, if you quit waiting on the Lord, don't stop. Maybe it's an illness, it's a chronic illness and you keep expecting God to heal it or God to make it better. And it's just not getting any better and you have to keep waiting and waiting. Maybe it's your prodigal. It's that kid that you loved and you raised that child up to know and honor and serve the Lord and then they became an adult and they walked away from that and began to live a life totally the opposite of what you always expected and dreamed for them to walk in Christ and you pray and weep and beg God to bring them home to himself and home to a life that honors him and is beautiful for them and they're not not there yet and we have to wait and wait and wait here's my advice to you, keep Believing, keep waiting, keep trusting and God will prove himself faithful to you. Sarah got tired of waiting in chapter number 16. And because she got tired of waiting, she made mistakes. She, she failed in her thinking. Look at verse number one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bear him no children. That's the, that's the fact. God had made this promise 20 years earlier and they'd seen nothing, no, no baby yet. She couldn't bear a child, but verse 1 says, but she had a handmaid. And she starts thinking, well, you know, maybe. I mean, God said Abraham was going to have a child. Didn't necessarily say I was going to be the mother. So maybe what we should do is, and she starts thinking. And what always happens when we start thinking outside of God's will because we're not walking by faith. If y'all are listening, shout amen. We're not walking by faith. We start thinking outside of God's will. We always begin to rationalize. We begin to say, well, you know, God wants me to be happy. Or God would understand. Or I know what the Bible says. I don't know what God's word says. But, you know, my situation is different. And that's why we start thinking. Notice what she says. Verse number two. Sarah said to Abram. Behold now, the Lord has restrained, uh, restrained me from bearing children. Uh, this is God's fault. I don't know what his deal is. I don't know what the problem is. I don't, you know, maybe we misunderstood. I don't know. But I've got this maid, and she could have your baby, and maybe I could obtain children by her. And by the way, in that culture and in that uh, uh, servanthood or that slave culture, she could have totally taken Ishmael to be her own son and claimed. and and built her family in that way she failed in her thinking she failed by her rationalizing and the omission of this in the text tells me that she failed in her prayer life she didn't ask the lord about this the text records nowhere where she sought the lord she just had a thought rationalized it and went for it and because she failed in her faith then this great mistake was made now you know as well as I do that every time that we fail to walk in faith and we commit these sins, there's, there's a consequence, right? There's fallout. And notice the fallout from Sarah's failed faith. I mean, from the moment that this arrangement was made, it went south. Ladies, can you imagine the night that verse 3, when verse 3 says that she gave Abram's uh, Hagar to be his wife, and verse number 4 says, and he went in unto her. Can you imagine That night for Sarah, as she, the the wedding has happened, and she goes off out of Abraham's tent to another tent, and Abraham and Hagar are in that tent together, and she knows that relationship is being consummated, and she's on the one hand hoping for conception and a son, and on the other hand praying there'll be no conception so so that Hagar won't be in a better position with her husband than she's been it begins to go south. Immediately the Bible says, verse number four, as soon as Hagar knew she was pregnant, she starts to despise Sarah. She starts to belittle Sarah. I was able to give Abraham what you weren't able to give him. Immediately Sarah begins to resent Hagar. Immediately she begins to treat her harshly. Immediately Abraham and Sarah are at odds. These broken relationships, Sarah and Hagar, Hagar and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah and Abraham, these broken relationships happen. She so mistreats Hagar that Hagar flees for her life. When we we fail in our faith and we stop walking and waiting on God, we make decisions to get ahead of him every time we will harm relationships. And secondly, no time to really talk about it, but just see it quickly, verses 11 and 12, there is always generational wounds always generational wounds. When we leave the will of God, we cease waiting on him, we always harm future generations. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with men and women, but quite honestly, mostly men, who have said to me, look, I'm leaving, I'm done, I've had it, this marriage is over, I don't even want to try anymore, I've, I'm quitting, or I've, I've, I've found another person, and, and they just start doing, and I can't tell you how many times I've said, do you understand what you're doing to your children and your grandchildren? Do you know that the decision you're making now will affect your ability to have a relationship with your grandchildren? Do you know what you're doing? Text tells us in verses 11 and 12 that there will be generational conflict as a result, generational wounds as a result of Ishmael's conception and birth. Well, that's the fallout, And then finally, as we close, I want you to see the grace, God's grace covering over the consequences of their sin. I don't have time to really unpack it, but you'll see it in verses 13 down through verse number 16, where, where Hagar now flees for her life, and the angel of the Lord meets her there, and he says, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to go back. You're going to have this baby. There's going to be conflict, but I want you to know I'm going I'm to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I, I see you. And Hagar names the Lord who meets with her that day in the hebrew he, she names him or she calls his name El Roy El Roy and it means the god who sees me nobody had seen Hagar for who she was she was just a servant girl she was just a womb for Abraham she was just a despised pregnant second wife Nobody in that tent of Abraham saw her, but God saw her. Sitting by a well, broken and needy. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're running from. I don't know what decisions may have been made in your life that have put you where you are. Maybe decisions somebody else made and you're like Hagar, you're just dealing with the fallout from it. I don't know. But here's what I know. That no matter where you are, God sees you. He loves you and he knows all about it and he has grace for you. Amen. This is the God that we serve.